John 5, and this story is just, it seems to be a simple story about a sick man who's healed by Jesus. But if you take a deeper look at it, as we're going to do this morning, it's not just a story of Jesus healing a man from paralysis, but he's actually making him whole again. Um, So he's taken this man, he'd been like the scarecrow, ripped to pieces, torn limb from limb, as the lion says, had the stuffing knocked out of him. And uh, Jesus is putting him back together again. He's restoring him to the full wholeness that God intended for him. So if you look at the old King James version of this, uh, this is where I kind of, you get this idea. I love this version. In verse 6, the question Jesus asks the man is, wilt thou be made whole? Wilt thou be made whole? And so in that way, what this story is, is it's really an invitation. It's an offer to us. For people who have been broken down, beat up, it's an invitation for us. If we've lost hope of any change happening in our life, it's an invitation for those who've been marred and scarred by evil in any way. Do you want to be made whole? And that's the question that's being presented to us this morning. We're the scarecrow. And Christ is meeting us through this text in order to restore us to full wholeness. So I want to look at the question with you through three simple frames. First, why we're not whole. Then how we try to make ourselves whole. And then finally, how we, how we get whole. So why we're not whole, how we try to make ourselves whole, and then how we get whole. Okay? So first, why we're not whole. And I invite you to have your Bible open to John 5 if you'd like to kind of follow along. And this is in the first six verses. So look at the story with me. It's really fascinating, both for the setting as well as the characters. So first, the setting. Verse 1 tells us that Jesus, uh, it's in Jerusalem, it's set in Jerusalem during this time of an important Jewish festival. So you can kind of picture these thousands and thousands of Jewish pilgrims from all over that area of the world kind of flowing into the city to celebrate and worship and maybe see the sights and eat the foods. And um, some of you are visiting Seattle this weekend, so you can kind of identify with this. They're going to the local farmer's market and maybe, you know, visiting different tourist areas and having food and drinks and things, perhaps even live music. So like we have these music festivals in Seattle. There's one this weekend, Folk Life. Some of you might actually enjoy that. That's kind of the environment I think this is evoking for us. So there's people all over the city. And yet notice that Jesus, when he arrives in Jerusalem for this festival, he finds him, himself at this place called the Sheep Gate and a little place called Bethesda which was then, and is even now, if you go to Jerusalem, a place where uh, sheep and livestock were brought into the city. So it was kind of a vendor's entrance, you might say, and it, was pretty, it wasn't done up nicely for visitors. It would have smelled. It, wasn't, it was pretty drab. And the key here is that um, John tells us that at this gate, there's a series of pools near the entrance of the gate that have these healing properties. Uh, and those pools and their surrounding terraces in verse 3, we're told, are filled with a great number of, of disabled people lying around just begging, okay? So you can kind of get the, the image of this. And, and the significance of this, as the commentators have noted for centuries, is that Jesus did not go, when he got to Jerusalem, to the temple or to a place of mass appeal. He didn't go to the food court. He didn't go to Seattle Center. He went, when he arrived in Jerusalem, he went to a place of major need, he, in, where there's incredible poverty and profound suffering. And you can probably think of a place like that in Seattle. So that's the first thing we notice about the, the setting. Uh, here's the second thing about the, the people that are there. In verse 5, John tells us that this, this place, in this place, there's a number of disabled people, in particular one, this invalid, quote-unquote invalid, who'd been there for 38 years. And the Greek word that's used there to describe what that is, is a Greek word that literally means that he's paralyzed. He has no power to walk under his own strength. He's powerless to walk. And, and, and his powerlessness to walk would have actually been only the beginning of his problems. So in the, in, 
in the ancient Near East, I mean, as difficult as it is to, to have a disability in any time in history, in the ancient Near East, especially that particular disability of paralysis, of being a paraplegic, would have been particularly hard. I mean, there's no wheelchairs. There's no ADA-accessible buildings or ramps. There's no elevator like we have here, um, which meant that this man, and if you've been to Jerusalem, it's not flat. So this man had no way to get around except to literally drag his body from place to place. And it's all stone and dirt and gravel. And so he was likely very disfigured from, as a consequence of having to do that for 38 years. Now, what's more, uh, I've read paraplegics frequently suffer from poor, poor bowel and bladder control. So likely he had hygiene problems. He, I mean, he would have smelled really bad. And then vocationally, especially in that time, there were no options for him to do any work. So he was forced to beg. And, and likely he's also experiencing homelessness. So you kind of get a profile for this guy. In, in the first century, actually, people with disabilities were often rejected by their own families and their communities because they were seen as cursed. Like God had done, they had done something, so God had done something back. So there's punitive damage to them. And so socially, he's also very isolated. In fact, you see this in verse 7 in reply to Jesus' question when he says, do you want to get well? What does he say? Sir, I have no one. Which I think is just this poignant commentary on his condition. He has nobody. No family, no friends, no one in his life who could or would help him, no one to extend meaningful friendship, no one to express God's mercy to him, no one to even look him in the eye. For 38 years, four decades of isolation, just think of this, I don't know how old you are, but think of your life, four decades of pain, four decades of social, spiritual, and psychological suffering, four decades of loneliness. Um, That's a long time to be alone. I mean, if you like to be alone... (laughs) Uh, I don't know, four decades is, the, and the consequences of that for any person, just not just the first century, but for us today, are immense. I read an article in the Atlantic Monthly a few years ago called This is Solitary, which was an article tracing the um, social and psychological effects of solitary confinement on inmates in, in American prisons. And I'm particularly interested in this because uh, that's an area in which I, I enjoy pastoring or reaching out to people. And so there's this host of studies that this article pointed to that, about the chronic anxiety and the panic attacks and, that inmates in solitary confinement experience. So hallucinations, loss of impulse control, depression, long-term memory loss, so much so that the rates of self-harm within um, solitary confinement skyrocket. So there are only about 3 to 8% of the entire prison population in America are solitary confinement inmates, but they, they count for 50% of suicides, prison suicides. So what that tells you is, is that isolation fosters and causes self-harm. That's what it does. And this man had been isolated most of his life. Life expectancy in those days wasn't much beyond this. In fact, there's an article in Wired magazine after that article in Atlantic that said the human brain so ill-adapted to such conditions that activists and psychologists equate it to torture, that solitary confinement isn't merely uncomfortable, but it's, it's such an anathema to human needs that it's often, it often drives prisoners mad. And so that's the profile of this man in John 5, actually. In, in fact, we get a little glimpse of his ma- this brewing madness in him in verse 14, when Jesus says to him, after he's been healed, he finds him again, and he says, stop sinning or something worse might happen to you. I heard a couple of you laugh and wonder about that, because at first glance, that can kind of seem harsh and jarring, right, for Jesus to say that to this man. Some, like Jesus is somehow linking this man's paralysis to some sort of sin, willful disobedience, right? I mean, that's kind of how I read that, right? I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. In fact, if you go to John 9, just a few chapters after this, 
Somebody actually asked Jesus about the link between, uh, linkage between physical disability and sin. Do you know what Jesus says? That's ridiculous. You can't, there is no link. And so I don't think that's what Jesus is saying in John 5. It couldn't be, unless he's contradicting himself, which I don't think he does. What I believe he's saying is much like uh, what these studies from Wired and Atlantic show us, is that solitary confinement, which is really what this man's experiencing, doesn't just affect your body, it affects your soul. Like, he is physically unwell there by the pool. He's been dragging himself around for decades, but he's also spiritually, socially, and emotionally sick. I mean, who knows, Jesus says, if he's not careful and doesn't tend to his soul, do some soul work now that he's been healed physically, what can come out of his soul after 38 years of that kind of suffering? Who knows what kind of hardness of heart has set in, right? What kind of hopelessness, uh, how that might cause him to lapse into a different sort of paralysis um, if he doesn't take the necessary steps to process the experience, right? Are you with me? Who knows what kind of anger and bitterness and rage could come out of him, okay? So, so he's physically cured, awesome, Jesus is telling him, you're far more than just a physical being. You're body, soul, spirit. You're a whole being. I'm here to heal you wholly, okay? And so what we see in this story is it's far more than just a physical healing. That's the beautiful thing about it. This man needs healing in every way a person needs healing. He needs healing physically, socially, relationally, emotionally, vocationally. In every way a person can be broken, this man's been broken, and Jesus is saying you need healing in every dimension of your life. And so the application question for, for us, as we kind of move to the end of this first point, is do you? <laughs> like all of us, the Bible says, every one of us in the room was created for wholeness, made in God's image. Uh, Psalm 139, God delights in, in our created nature. He delights in who we are. All of us are created for a perfect relationship with God, with each other, with creation, with our work, with our bodies. We're made for that uh, wonderful Hebrew word called shalom, which is full flourishing in every aspect of life. But Paul says in Romans, if you read later in the Bible, that all of us are unraveling in some way. And we're experiencing the tragic losses of, of the loss of shalom, the unraveling of our bodies. Um, that what evil has done, in other words, to our world and to us as people, is like those wicked monkeys in The Wizard of Oz. It swooped in, ripped us limb from limb, experience after experience, loss after loss, hurt after hurt, uh, you know, abuse after abuse, just tears us apart year after year, shreds our souls piece by piece. That's what evil does. Just fragmenting the good creation that God has made until we're shadows, you know, just shadows of the people God made us to be. So yeah, you might not be able to relate to this man directly, physically, though some of you I'm sure can. Like some of you I've talked to are facing tremendous physical, emotional, relational, vocational challenges. Overwhelming. But I know this to be true as well. All of us can point to at least one area in our lives where we can say, yes, this is part of my life. I'm not well. I, there's a loneliness. There's a, a deep sadness. There's a, there's a sort of doubt lingering within you. A, a, the difficult decision you need to make about your future. A broken relationship. Uh, a loss of a loved one. A loss of physical vitality. We're all experiencing something in, in measures where we can say, this, this in me is not whole, if we're honest with ourselves. And thus, what John 5 is here to tell us is like a mirror it's here to show us the power of Christ's healing, not just for the desperately lost and broken, but it's here for, to show us and invite us into the, the, the healing that Christ offers for all of us. 
for us to say yes and amen, God. I, this is part of my life, part of my story. This is not just some poor guy under a bridge off of I-5 or beside a pool in the first century. This is me. This is all of us. And so that's the first thing that this text shows us is that we all are not whole. That's the first thing, okay? But here's the deal. Here's number two. Even though we're all not whole, we often try to make ourselves whole, okay? And so here's the bad news. Uh, we desperately, in our wholeness, uh, look at verse 7, try to do it ourselves. So Jesus asks the question, do you want to get whole or get, be made well? And what does he say? Sir, <laughs> I have no one to help me in the pool when the water's stirred. While I'm trying to get in, you know, he's dragging himself down, someone else gets in there before me. Now let's just talk about this little pool for a second, because that might not make sense to you, unless you kind of know the story. So, like I said, it's near these colonnades of Bethesda, and it's so well known that it generated a sort of legend in that time of being this sort of magical healing pool. In fact, if some of you are open to your Bibles, you're probably seeing there that it goes from verse 3 to verse 5. Like, there's no verse 4 in this story. And in some of your Bibles, some English translations, actually put verse 4 in the, in, the, in the bottom there, in like a footnote. And the reason for that is that at some point in history, some ancient person wrote in the margins something that wasn't thought to be in the original text, which is sort of an explanation of the legend of this pool at Bethesda. And the legend goes like this, that every now and then this angel would come down and descend into the water of the pool, stir it up, and then impute it with healing properties. And then whenever that angel would come down, whenever that water stirred, the first person into the water would be cured of whatever disease they had. So if someone's blind, they'd be able to see. If they were sick, health. Paralysis, they could walk. Anyone sitting by the pool, all they had to do is be the first person in the water, and they'd be healed. Okay? That's the deal. Now, this had become such a powerful legend within that part of the world that many, many, many lame and sick and suffering had amassed around the pool, that part of Jerusalem, day in, day out, year after year, just waiting. You can imagine this, waiting for that water to be stirred, just looking at the water, just waiting for the water to be stirred, preparing themselves for that moment to jump in the water and seize their opportunity for healing. And for this man, and with many of them gathered around the pool, that had become such an intoxicating and singular hope that he'd been there for 38 years. 38 years of waiting for that water to be stirred up. Just imagine, 38 years of waiting for healing. 38 years of waiting for that angel to come down into his life and just do something for him, right? To make something happen, to fix him. And you can see his desperation in verse 7 when after Jesus asks him if he wants to get well, rather than just saying, yes, I do, <laughs> can you help? He, he goes on this long and whiny explanation about how, because of his paralysis, he's never the first person down to the water. It's just too hard. Never has he been able to, in 30 years, seize his opportunity. Never experience healing. Never live a life beyond this pool. He's just sitting there waiting. And the application for us is this, this is a subtle and yet powerful commentary on what we all do as broken people when we know that we're sick and we go somewhere else looking for healing. Like, we all know deep down we're not well, right, at a level. Am I right? We all, I mean, some, maybe some of us are like, no, I'm fine. But I think we're all in the same boat. And yet, what we often do in our brokenness, if you're honest with yourself, is instead of looking to God to heal us, we look to something in creation. We look to a pool, a myth, a legend 
so to speak. Something that is in the created order that we tell ourselves will deliver us the healing we desperately desire and desperately need. In fact, Paul talks about this in Romans 1. When he's talking about the universal propensity of humanity to sin, he says in Romans 1.25 that they, and he's talking about us, <laughs> exchanged the truth about God for a lie, worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. That's what we do. We worship and serve. We look to created things, these false hopes. We develop false saviors, false healers, false expectations. And we, in doing that, we exchange truth for a lie. True healing for, because of a myth, we've been told. Something in creation we believe is going to make us well, but it has no power to do that. We say essentially, if only. I mean, can you hear that in this man's response to Jesus? If only I could get in that pool, then my body would be made well. I'd be able to walk. And my life would be right. If only other people didn't get there before me. If it weren't for all these other people that are in line before me. If only I had somebody to help me. If I weren't so alone all these years. If only my life was different. I feel so cursed right now. If only this hadn't happened to me. Who knows why he's paralyzed? If only my story was different. What, I mean, what a powerful commentary on our response to suffering very often. Uh, Carolyn Knapp, some of you might know her writing. She died in 2002. And she was, she was a pro- prolific author who, like, through her 20, she had a 20-year battle with anorexia, which later developed into alcoholism and, later, and other addictions, and uh, died tragically at the age of 42 in 2002. But in a memoir she wrote before her death, she had those same words. And, and here's what she wrote. She, sa- she says this, I live by the words, if only, and I continue to do so for a decade. In my 20s, the objects of desire were good jobs and thin thighs. If only I could write for a living, then I'd be happy. If only I were 5 or 10 or 15 pounds thinner, my life would be different. If in my 30s the focus shifted to men, if only I had a relationship, I thought. And then months after meeting my boyfriend Julian, who she later married, if only the relationship were different. <laughs> if only I could get out of the marriage. If only he was this height or, or he had that hair color or he had, didn't have that particular habit. How deeply, she says, those if-onlys can grab you. If only I had that house that artwork, that taste, then that would do it. And then she goes on to say, I thought I was missing something or had missed something or more hopefully might acquire something if only I could look in the right places. So what's your if only? Do you have an if only right now? You're you're facing some suffering, some paralysis like this man, and you're looking to something else right now to, to heal you, to bring you out of that other than God. Some of you might immediately know what it is. And I'm telling you, for some of us, those if-onlys are pretty destructive. Like, some of us, when we're feeling this immense weight of the brokenness of our lives, or a desire for healing, uh, it's like this pool right in front of us, we can't get to it. We, we go after some pretty destructive things. Alcohol, food, sex, we overwork, whatever it might be. But listen, <laughs> if-onlys don't necessarily need to be destructive. Here's the, here's the hard thing. They can be good things. They can be relationships. They can be a certain level of income. They can be a house. They can be your children. And here's Carolyn Knapp again. She says, that's what's so insidious about consumerism. It's not that it encourages us to shop, but it encourages us to forget. Not that it sparks need, but it dilutes it. Do you hear that? It shrink wraps it, and it, it flings it into the handiest, most tangible containers. She goes on to say that very gradually and seamlessly, we say, if only... If that won't work, maybe this will. If only is that almost always speak to a hunger for something more complicated than the objects at hand. It speaks to identity, confidence, 
and a persona magically crafted out of fabric and thread. (laughs) If only. So here's the bad news. (laughs) There's nothing in those containers underneath that shrink wrap. There's nothing in that pool. 38 years, there's no angel. There's no stirring of the waters. Jesus is here to tell the man, it doesn't matter if you get in the water. It's just a myth. Try as you might to find healing in that place, you're never going to get it. Uh, and we all do this. We all have tried this. I am with you. We never get well. We, we just keep waiting and longing and seeking and becoming more and more embittered and cynical that anything could ever happen. And then we're just filled with more and more despair. Uh, Henry Nouwen, as you know, is one of my favorite authors, and he, said, he actually writes about this. He says, aren't you like me, hoping that some person, something, some event will come along and give you that final feeling of inner well-being you desire. Don't you hope that this book, this idea, maybe this sermon, that trip, this job, this country, this relationship will fulfill your deepest need? Don't you hope? But as long, he says, as you're waiting for that mysterious moment, the angel in the water, you'll go around running helter-skelter, always anxious, restless, always lustful, never fully satisfied. And then he says, you know, don't you, that this compulsiveness keeps us going and busy, never at rest, and makes us wonder whether we're going anywhere in the long run. Do you ever feel that way? Like you're just going nowhere right now? This is the way to spiritual exhaustion, he says. This is the way to spiritual death. So we're sick. We know we're broken. And many of us, I'm with you, we look to created things rather than our creator for wholeness. And instead of healing, what do we experience? Death. Happy Sunday. <laughs> Glad you came to church today, aren't you? <laughs> Happy Memorial Day weekend. But there's, so there's good news. That's why I have a third point. There's always good news, I hope. So here's the third point this story teaches. How we get whole. So we're sick. We try to make ourselves whole. There is a source of wholeness in this story and healing. And Jesus, to put it bluntly, it's not the pool. <laughs> it's, it's not the pool. It's not the angel. The this is the only thing we're ever offered. We only get well through a, a personal and living encounter with Jesus. We only get well through a personal and living encounter with Jesus. That's what's happening in this story. This man's at this pool 38 years, and he has a personal and living encounter with Jesus, and so can you. And so just look at Jesus. Three things, three ways, actually, you can have a personal and living encounter with Jesus to conclude here. So first of all, Jesus seeks this man out. This is very similar to the story we studied last week in Luke 17. Notice this. Jesus goes after this guy twice in this story. So first, in the beginning, Jesus is just coming into Jerusalem at the Sheep Gate. And if you read the story, he hears from somebody else this man's story. There's a a lot of people there. (laughs) And Jesus picks one guy. 38 years he's been there. And Jesus seeks this man out. And he has this encounter with him. But then again in verse 14, check this out. He heals the guy, and then he goes and finds the guy in the temple. So this is sometime later. Don't know how long. The guy's gone to church. Maybe it's one of you. And Jesus might be seeking you here. You've drifted from him. I know he's a little bit harsh on Jesus right now. He kind of outs him. And maybe that's you right now. Maybe you're like, I, I man, when I was younger... I prayed to receive Christ. I was on the mountain, and now it's just like nothing. The preaching's terrible. The music's terrible. The people never talk to me. Where are you, Jesus? <laughs> and here's the fun thing. Jesus is here. 
he seeks this guy out after he's been healed, and he says, hey, take up your mat and go home. And so here's the application. Jesus doesn't, he doesn't share his story with Jesus. Jesus learns it. He doesn't ask Jesus for help. Jesus asks him if he wants help. And he doesn't seek Jesus out. Jesus seeks him out. This is the way. That, and so what we're seeing here is one of the great truths of the Bible. Through Jesus, our God is a God who pursues us. God is a God who seeks you. Uh, God is a God who goes after people, even when you're not looking for him. I don't know if you came to church looking for Jesus this morning, but he's looking for you. This is, we see this as early as Genesis 3. Adam and Eve eat from the, you know, so, they eat the so-called forbidden fruit. Remember that? And they're hiding among the trees of the Garden of Eden because they know they've blown it. Like they were told by God, don't do it. They did it. And God, this is beautiful, rather than burning the forest down and starting over again or shaming them in, in anger and saying, these guys, idiots, can I get two more? He says, very curiously, a question, where are you? Where are you, Adam and Eve? It's the first question in the Bible, sort of this ancient Near Eastern game of hide-and-go-seek. And I've heard it said that every other question in the Bible, remember, Jesus is asking this guy a question, do you want to get well? Every other question in the Bible is sort of an echo of that same question. It's like echolocation. God is seeking you. God's pursuing you. God's going after you. This is Luke 15. Your, your children are studying Luke 15 this morning, the story of the lost son. It's a lost sheep, lost son, lost coin. God's after them. This is what David, when Psalm 139, after he's blown it with Bathsheba and, and Uriah, where he says, God, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? <laughs> I can go nowhere. You find me. This is John, uh, Jesus in John 5, just inviting this man on a journey of wholeness. Do you want to get well? I'm after you, and I want to offer that to you. Do you want it? So we have a God who pursues until what he's, what he's lost is found, a God who's relentlessly and passionately after us in our brokenness. So can you look back on your life and recognize a time when God sought you out? When you were lost and you know that you know God was knocking on the door of your heart. There was this time where I did experience this in my life, and I just wanted to offer a personal experience so you, maybe you, this will help you. I shared this story before, I think, but... It, um, I was as far from God, this is actually after um, coming to know Christ, as I could be, and yet God sought me out. I was in my fifth year of college, <clears throat> so I switched majors kind of late. I switched majors in my senior year. <laughs> if you're waiting to go to college, I see a couple, don't do that. Like, choose a major early and stay with it. <laughs> Your parents will thank you. Uh, so I switched majors, and one of the consequences of that is all my classmates that I started college with had graduated. So I'm alone, very lonely. I'd been in a relationship with a, with a young woman for years during college, and I thought, I literally thought, it was like my first love, I thought I was going to marry this girl. And we broke up. And that was really hard. I was depressed. I got injured in a mountain biking accident. I'd broken my clavicle, so swimming for me wasn't, that was a big part of my identity to that point. That was off the table. I wasn't able to swim. So everything, everything in my life was hard. I met Jesus. <laughs> everything got hard. And I remember this day, in the middle of that year, just uh, Tacoma, Washington, lying in bed in the middle of the day, you know, deep, just deeply sad. And I remember uh, this friend of mine, good friend of mine now, coming to my room, and uh, middle of the day, I shouldn't have been in bed, I should have been in class, and uh, just, he just put his hand on my back. I remember he sat down uh, at this futon bed, he sat down on my bed, 
and just sat there, didn't say anything, put his hand on my back, and he started to intercede for me. He was just kind of speaking under his breath. I think he was interceding against the lies I was experiencing, the darkness in my room. And I'll just tell you right now, things didn't get better immediately. <laughs> like, there was a lot of work to do. In fact, I'm doing some of that work today, like literally, it seems. <laughs> but I knew that I knew that I knew in that moment that I wasn't alone. I wasn't alone. And I was loved. And so here's what I want to tell you. If you feel stuck right now, like if you feel lost, if you feel far from God, far from others, like you feel like me alone, you're just sitting there and you're just hoping <laughs> for healing or waiting for something to happen. Like some, nothing's happening, nothing's moving. There's no progress in your life. I want you to hear, not only is God not in the water, He's not, he's not there. Stop looking there. God's not waiting for you to get your act together. <laughs> this is the beauty. God, he's my, he, he might be calling you to another pool. I don't know. But he's not waiting for you to come to him. He's entering in to the frame of your story after you pursuing you, inviting you, inviting you into relationship, inviting you out of that, that place. So God longs to find you in order to restore you. That's the first thing, okay? Will you let yourself be found? Will you be vulnerable enough in these moments to just let yourself be found? That's the first thing. Here's the second thing we Jesus, see Jesus doing. He rouses this man. So he says, do you want to get healed? Which can seem like a dumb question. Like, of course, this guy's been there almost 40 years. Of course, right? Like, why, we, why even ask the question? I mean, who wants to lie there like the scarecrow and just be dismembered for the rest of your life, right? You, you obviously want help. But here's the deal. Any of us who can identify this man or have friends in our lives or relatives who are like this man know how difficult it is to affirm Jesus' question, right? Like, we know how a, sen- a sense of discouragement can lead to ambivalence. Like, I'm guessing after four decades of suffering, he's kind of given up on himself. I mean, I'm sure when... He gave Jesus that long and whining excuse. He's like, have you seen me? Really? I am beyond hope. There are hundreds of other people here. Try somebody else. Like, I'm beyond the pale. He's, he's lost. He's no longer entertaining the possibility of that anything could be different in his life. In fact, I think he might have even been at this point where he doesn't want to get better. Because his identity is probably so wrapped up in that pool, his disability, he no longer has an imagination for what it would look like to live beyond that place. He's become so wed to the myth, so wed to the, the, the condition he's in, so wrapped up in this healing, this idea that he, he's going to get it there, that his imagination, his desire for what life could look like beyond the pool, free from that place, doesn't exist. He has no alternative vision. That's actually, I think, if paralysis could be a metaphor, that's the metaphor of his paralysis. He has no alternative vision for his life. He is stuck in his, in his paralysis, he can't embrace anything different. You know, he doesn't, maybe he doesn't want to. <laughs> maybe he's like, Jesus, I just don't, it's going to be too hard. And so through this question, I think what Jesus is doing at a level is what we call a good old-fashioned intervention. He's just saying, brother, <laughs> can you imagine a new scenario for your life? Do you have a vision? Like a vision bigger than this pool, bigger than the fact you can't walk, bigger. I'm here to give that to you. Do you have an imagination for what your life could look like beyond these waters? Because they're just waters. 
and I have something more for you right now. So he's rousing what he always is doing with people. He's rousing this man's desire to live, like live freely, like with capacities and gifts that he's been given. He still has a heartbeat and a pulse. He's still an image bearer of God, despite the fact that he can't walk. And he's saying, God, he's saying to this man, you're not dependent on this place to be an image bearer. Uh, (laughs) I'm in you. I'm working with you. I'm going to work through you. This is precisely what Paul talks about in Colossians 2 when he says that our completeness, completeness is only realized with Christ. He's saying the only way you're going to realize wholeness is if you join me, if you join my story. So some of us have our backs, have had our backs against the, the wall so long. We're in a situation so discouraging. And we're dealing with the same old questions. You come here every week, you're dealing with the same question, same burden. Maybe it's the same sin. You know, you keep going back there that you've lost any hope, that anything could be different. And so some of you just need rousing right now. Like Jesus intervening and saying, you know, can you imagine your life different? We need Jesus to say to us, do you want to get well? I've got something for you. It may not look exactly the way you think it's going to look, but it's always going to lead to freedom. Do you have a vision for for freedom, for wholeness for your life? And can you hold that in front of the light of Christ and trust him for it? Trust him for it. Can you imagine a new scenario? So that's the second thing. Jesus intervenes and he says, hey, imagine your life different. Okay? Here's the last thing. For this man, at least, he heals this man. Okay? So he pursues him. He intervenes for him and then he heals him. And I love this part. Verse 8, Jesus just says to the guy, get up, pick up and walk. There's like no invocation of God's name. You know, he doesn't use holy hands. (laughs) There's no impartation of healing, just three short commands in languages unspiritual as you can imagine. Just get up, pick up, and walk. And in that way, as one commentator suggests, one senses that Jesus' command is actually addressed as much to the man's mind as it is to his body. And here's why. It, it would have taken immense, an immense amount of courage if, if, if Jesus were here and you're paralyzed to say, get up, pick up, and walk. It would have taken so much courage to obey that command. I mean, what happens if I fall? I've tried that before. What happens if people laugh? They are always talking about me and how I look and how I smell. What happens if it works? <laughs> like, what if I do get up pick up and begin walking. How will I cope with life not begging? I don't have a job. I have no meaningful skills. What will I do? Can I trust? He doesn't even know Jesus' name yet. Remember? He goes back and he he doesn't even know who this guy is. Can I trust this guy? I don't even know who he is. There are thousands of pilgrims around this pool. Can I trust this one? So whatever he's thinking, he's probably thinking a host of things, and you are too probably, He did exactly what he was told to do. He got up, he picked up, and he walked, which can only mean this for us, that God only begins to work miracles when we take a step of risky obedience. God only begins to work miracles in our life when we take a step of risky obedience. God's miracles seldom, if you read the scriptures through and through, they seldom happen out of the blue. They they, they seldom just happen. There's always, they always take place in the lives of those who, who are, kind of active. They, they seldom take place in the lives of those who are passive and are doing nothing. They often take place in the lives of those who are obedient 
and respond. And so they're usually a mixture of God's power, but also our willingness, okay? So this man's obedience, as one author said, to the words of Jesus actually is his healing. His obedience is his healing. So on Jesus' side, he's concerned for the man. He pauses, he intervenes. He casts him a vision. He says, hey, I'm, I, I'm here to set you free. You want to be free. On the man's side, he has to respond. He has to respond to the intervention. intervention. He has to literally get up, pick up, and walk, and just take the next step. Literally, for him, it is the next step. And so here's the question as we respond this morning. What's your next step? God's pursuing you. God wants to intervene in your life. But God's probably calling you just to take the next step. Um, For this man, it was to get up, pick up his mat, and walk. What's he saying to you? It's probably going to depend on what you're facing. But is there a step of obedience that God's inviting you to take? Is there a step of obedience God's inviting you to take? Austin shared this quote with our... uh, volunteer team this morning in our huddle, and I asked him if I, well, I didn't ask you, but is it okay if I read it? Yes, he's nodding. It's not his quote. It's from a guy named Paul David Tripp. I loved it, and I just wanted to drop it in. He said this, change is possible. You can stand amid the harshest realities of sin and have hope that will never disappoint you, that marriage can change, that teenager can change, That church can change, that friendship can change, that bitterness can be put to death, that compulsion can be broken, that fear can be defeated, that stony heart can be made soft, and sweet words can come uh, from a once acid tongue. Loving service can come from a person who was once totally self-absorbed. People can have power without being corrupt. Homes can be places of safety, love, and healing. Change is possible. Change is possible because the king has come. And then the quote goes on to say, the Bible calls this change redemption, or in the frame of today's story, wholeness. We're, we're not only changed, but we're made whole, restored to God. That's what makes all change possible, that Jesus shows up and makes it happen. So what change does Jesus want to cause in your life? And what step in that direction is he inviting you to take today? It's possible. All those things that this author listed are possible. Will you take a step in the direction of Jesus today and trust him for the whole journey, okay? Let's just take a moment to pray. I'll invite our worship team back up.